This is Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the C. Boyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm the Center's Director, Adam White. On October 4, 2019, the Gray Center hosted its second annual Administrative Law Symposium with the George Mason Law Review. This year, the topic we chose was the administration of democracy, that is, the ways in which administrative agencies are involved in our nation's democratic processes. Normally for these conferences, we have a keynote speaker. But for this symposium, we had a keynote conversation between two experts with unique experience in the intersection of the administration of election law and also the administration of government more broadly. The speakers were Donald McGahn, White House counsel to President Trump and former chairman of the Federal Election Commission, and Bob Bauer, former White House counsel for President Obama, and another of the nation's leading experts on campaign finance law. It was a really extraordinary conversation. It was such a pleasure and honor to get to moderate that conversation. We enjoyed it, and we hope you will too. I'm always sorry to interrupt the uh, lunch conversations, but I think we'll move on to the next segment of the conference. Before we do, I want to just make a couple of brief announcements. Um, First of all, as always, this event would not be possible without the Gray Center staff, the law students, uh, RSVP catering, and also the White House uh, Historical Association. So please join me in thanking everybody who made this possible. Now, just a couple of words very briefly about the White House Historical Association in particular. Uh, First of all, in case you hadn't noticed, it's that time of year, getting colder outside. They are selling the White House Christmas ornament. Um, It's available in the gift shop. (laughs) This is a fun one. This one, in honor of of Eisenhower, is a uh, a helicopter. Uh, You cannot have this one. This one is mine. But I encourage you to support the people who make this space possible. And on that, I always like pointing out when we do events here, and we do events here often, uh, that so much of this building and the neighborhood around us is made possible today only because of the hard work over many, many decades by the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Um, All the work they have done for so many years to preserve our national institutions. Because institutions don't preserve themselves, and it takes hard work, uh, statesmanship, and philanthropy to make all of this possible. Now, that's what we consider our work here at the Gray Center, to help preserve American institutions by supporting scholarship, debate, dialogue, events like today, and all the variety of workshops and roundtables and everything we organize. We're very, very proud to do this. We're grateful for the support that makes it possible. Some of the favorite things we do here are promoting dialogue and discussion. And for an event like this on the administration of democracy, there's literally no two better speakers, experts, and public servants than we could have invited for this discussion. Two people with truly unique combinations of experience, both in government service and in the laws that govern our elections. So let me introduce them both briefly and then invite them up to the table for a discussion. Donald McGahn was White House counsel from 2017 to 2018 after serving as general counsel to the presidential campaign in 2016 of Donald Trump. He also served on the Federal Election Commission from 2008 
2013 and chaired the commission in 2008. He's now, again, a partner at the law firm of Jones Day, and he also serves on the Council of the Administrative Conference of the United States. And we're also joined today by Robert Bauer. Bob Bauer was White House counsel from 2009 to 2011 after serving as general counsel for the presidential campaign of Barack Obama in 2008. He also served previously as general counsel for the Democratic National Committee. He's now professor of practice and distinguished scholar in residence at the New York University School of Law, where he co-directs the Legislative and Regulatory Process Clinic. So please join me in welcoming Mr. McGahn and Mr. Bauer. vibrant discussion today on a couple of topics, and we have more to come, but for this discussion, as I, I told our speakers, I wanted to begin with a very broad question. How should we think of the current state of our political campaigns and elections, and what reforms, if any, would help to improve the state of our democracy? Don, would you like to start? No. I don't, I'm not here. Bob, would you like to start? <laughs> He's the professor. I think the person goes to the first question goes to the person who last served as White House counsel. We're not here in our capacity as former White House counsel. We are the two counsels who had the most successful, most recent presidential campaigns, though. Okay, well, that's fair. Okay. So I have to go first? Yes. Okay, fine. Uh, the, he, he used to regulate my clients, so I tend to be deferential. If you believe some of the people in the room, I didn't really do that either. Well, that's true, too. That's true. And yet, I represented them, and it was quite profitable. In any event... I would say, and I'm speaking here from the, probably largely the perspective of having participated in the work of the Presidential Commission on Election Administration that President Obama set up in 2013 and that reported findings in 2014, but not entirely or exclusively limited to that. If I think about campaign finance, well, for example, some of the issues that are currently in the news, I would have to say, at a minimum, that we are We've been really derelict uh, in the attention that we have paid to the electoral administrative infrastructure of the country. So I'll just start with elections per se. The resources we devote to them, the manner in which they're administered, the, I think, regrettable lack of expertise that we commit to a process, an administrative process that I think desperately requires expertise. The commission on which I participated, and I'll just say very briefly something about campaign finance, but there are a whole series of areas of law implicated by your question. The commission that I participated in found that there were a range of potential problems. It began by studying the question of lines, but it had a much broader mandate and looked more generally at the quality of the administration of our elections. And that included looking at the current state of technology that's used uh, to support the voting process, you know, voting machines and just what generation of technology and how it was faring in effect at the time. And the overall conclusion I have to draw, even though some progress was made and we had a very good follow-up and implementation phase to the actual publication of the recommendations, is that in my judgment, this country does not take elections seriously enough. One of the things that we discovered is that between elections, because they come and then they go quickly, 
a lot of our administrators and state legislators just simply lose, lose interest. And if they have a choice among competing budgetary priorities, it's just far easier for them to allocate less to the electoral process than they allocate to other concerns, which are legitimate concerns, competing concerns to be sure, but I think far less than necessary. Our machinery is in poor state, in a poor state. Our security arrangements are inadequate. Some of the administration of elections, and I mean this on both the Democratic and the Republican side, is way too politicized, which is what I meant by talking about the woeful deficiency in expertise. So I'll say that about that. And then on campaign finance, I'll simply say this is where Don and I could have both a robust discussion and a surprising degree of agreement on this. There are limits, to be sure, on the degree to which government can or prudently should be regulating the flow of political money. But it's a mess at the moment. And the expectations of the public don't mesh with the actual performance of the administrative process that is put in place. The administrative process in place isn't functioning well under a variety of pressures, which include the constraints that have been placed on what administrators can do by recent judicial decisions. So I would have to give you a generally pessimistic response. Don, do you have any thoughts? I don't disagree with Bob uh, often, and I'm not probably going to do it today much either, and I'm not going to disagree with anything I think you just said. Um, the commission you're talking about um, issued a report. I have it on my shelf. I've read it. thought it was great work. Uh, I, think it's, I think you call it the Bauer-Ginsburg Commission. At Jones Day, we call it the Ginsburg-Bauer Commission. Um, but it did get into long lines and that kind of thing and making it easier and more uh, straightforward for people to vote, which I think is a shared goal. It does show that there is opportunities for people on both sides of the aisle to come together, decide on what they could agree on, and then work towards not fighting over the things they know they're going to disagree on instead work towards things they're going to agree on. Um, and I think it does provide somewhat of a pathway for states looking to uh, help. How many states have really gotten in it? I'm not really sure. I remember I was on a panel a few years ago with an election official from a large state. I won't mention who it was, but he proceeded to kind of razz me for my views. And I, I pivoted back on him and said, is he going to implement anything in the, the Bauer Ginsburg? Commission, being an elected statewide Democrat, he was very proud of his voting rights record until I started explaining that he has not really done anything to improve his internal systems. Um, which is, is uh, uh, I think what happens is, and this is, this is sort of a supplement to what Bob said, is it is tough when you get into the budgeting process at the state level uh, to fund election infrastructure, meaning new machines and the like. I think things tend to be on autopilot uh, and it becomes tough politically when you have to make priority judgments. And I think everyone uh, at a certain point, uh, if, if you're an incumbent politician, thinks, well, we can probably get through one more cycle before we fix this. And it's not going to happen here. We hope it'll be close enough and we'll fix it tomorrow once we uh, pay for the other things we need to pay for. So um, I'm not sure. It, I wouldn't be sure I'd agree with the phrase not serious enough. I just think it's, it's uh, that's one way of putting it. Um, I think that uh, you had Hava in the early 90s, not early 90s, early 2000s, sorry. Um, and we haven't really had an update of stuff since, right? So it seems like it's time. And machines that were bought then, I still, we still think of them as new. Mm -hmm. They're actually not new. Uh, and so there's a little bit of trouble there. So I think you know, I'm, I'm sorry, not going to make any headlines, disagreeing with Bob out of the gate, but, uh, you know, similar thoughts as Bob. Well, on this point that you raised about the technology in especially state-level elections, 
Is there anything that the federal government can or should do to move that along, or is this a place where the government ought to just leave well enough alone and, and count on the states to do what's right? Not, I, I'm not sure that's the only options. I think, I think that's maybe a false, a false choice, but I, I see a, a, a third way. The federal government doesn't run our elections. The states and loca localities, states run elections. They decide who comes to Washington to represent their interests. Washington should not get in the business of helping decide who comes to Washington. Now, there is, there is some tension with what I just said with the Constitution because ultimately the House and Senate are the judge of their elections. So they do have a role if something really goes off the wire to decide who they seek. Um, but uh, the federal government's role, I think, is one of an advisory capacity, one that should be there to assist state and local uh, folks with best practices and the like. Uh, Congress created the Election Assistance Commission for this purpose. Um, DHS, others are, 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 regardless of who's in the White House, uh, at least saying that they're helping uh, it, to the extent that they, they can. But you can take it too far where people expect the federal government to do things and actually sort of essentially take over elections. That's, that's a bad thing. That inverts kind of how we elect, it, elect officials. So baked into our, our experiment with democracy and federalism is the idea that you can't just have the federal government take over and do it, but they certainly can assist uh, states. And, you know, again, back to Bob's commission, President Obama put that together. And, you know, that's a good roadmap for people to read. And more people should take it seriously and read it and take a look at things that maybe would actually help. Money. <clears throat> I think, the, I mean, I agree with everything Don said, but I also think the federal government has a role. Granted, you know, it's not on the list of the most popular budget line items. But in order for this generation of technology to be replaced with the appropriate guidance about the kind of next generation technology that ought to replace it, the federal government could do what it did after 2000 in connection with the Help America Vote Act when the objective was to replace punch card machines and provide states and localities with financial incentives to make these changes. And as Don says, expert guidance so that they can work their way through the choices available to them of the kind of technology that would be appropriate. I do think the government could do that. There's no apparent move to do that. And I think we're going to have a, 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 someone we, we both know who writes a lot in this area talks regularly, warns about meltdown, the likelihood of a meltdown, another election meltdown, sort of Florida 2000 to the exponential degree. Maybe not just Florida, but four or five other states in which the margin uh, is disputed and there's clear-cut breakdown of one kind or another. And there are multiple ways, of course, as Don well knows, that an election can break down and there can be some question about who the legitimate winner is. And while I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure about the word meltdown, I do think we are courting what could be really disastrous. And I want to situate that in the context of an increasing assault, and I think you see this both on the left and the right, so I'm trying to keep this on a nonpartisan level, on the legitimacy of unwanted electoral outcomes, mm. where presidents are elected and the opposition parties find some way to say it wasn't legitimate. I mean, I, I can cite examples where Republicans made those claims against Democrats, and of course we know recently that Democrats have made those claims against Republicans, and in a case where each side, in a, in a polarized a polity in which the outcomes are frequently razor thin, this question of legitimacy has become increasingly, right, openly argued, asserted, and pursued. And I think when you have 
electoral system that's subject to this kind of breakdown, you're just inviting uh, a real, a very, very serious problem. Well, Bob, where would you draw the line then between voters and, and candidates speaking out where they think that they've been treated unfairly in election and going beyond the line to, you know, improper delegitimization of an election? There's so many different, well, you know, I've seen cases, I guess it's hard for me to answer the question without breaking it down into particular cases, uh, and I'll be short. I mean, there are cases where the argument against legitimacy has to do with some apparent major malfunction in the election administrative machinery. I'm thinking, by the way, of an election in Florida, I guess it was in 2002, where all of a sudden there was a problem sort of resulting in the aggregate of sort of 18,000 votes that really weren't accounted for. What happens in those circumstances is it's a localized complaint, and if the margin in the House of Representatives doesn't rest on resolving the outcome, to be honest with you, the country's prepared to move on. Oh, well, it's too bad you didn't get the seat. There may be some question about it. You move on. But that was an electoral administrative issue. But in other cases, and we've seen it in this last election, you know, there are very different claims that are made about what, 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 what affected the outcome. Highly controversial arguments over and divisive arguments over vote suppression, Hardly, very divisive arguments over foreign interference, increasingly potential allegations, particularly if the polling and the election outcomes don't align, uh, that there was hacking or some other cybersecurity failure. It could come at you from a lot of different directions. But if there's a willingness, and I'm, I, what I'm thinking about is Richard Nixon in 1960 was quite convinced that John that Kennedy had cheated him out of the general. Yeah, well. And, <laughs> and Don was there, he knows. <laughs> um, but Nixon, but, but in, fair, in fairness, I mean, it's, it's also true that Nixon, while publicly taking the position he was going to abide by the results, did have, I think, agents of his looking to just see whether there was any case to be made in Illinois and Texas. There was an expectation that he was going to swallow it and move on. I don't think that expectation reigns in either political party today. I mean, you, does that seem fair? I mean, my answer to the question was, when Bob's clients win, there's obviously shenanigans, and my clients win. Exactly. Win whistle, right? So a lot, <laughs> exactly. of this, a lot of this is situational, right? <laughs> exactly. Let, let's, let's be honest. Um, my thought is, as we move toward uh, ensuring ease of voting, and voters, there's always consternation when voting laws change because the fear is one side's going to advantage or disadvantage the other side, right? So there's always this transition thing. And I think of Colorado where they went to the vote by mail and and in certain circles that would cause the sky to fall. And then the first statewide they had, the Republican won and the sky didn't fall. At least the people I, you know, the sky was falling in my in my corner. Um, uh, sun was rising and I guess it is, was the sense from your side. So, but voters voters like to, to be able to go to the polls and make it easy and not, not, not make it hard. But as we move toward away from what used to be voting when I was a little kid, which was everybody voted on the same day on a certain Tuesday in November, and if you hadn't registered to vote by a certain day, you weren't going to be able to vote, um, to same-day registration, election season, where it's no longer election day, it's kind of election month or election weekends, uh, and, and the like, provisional ballots in case someone's not really on the rolls or something's weird, you at least get to cast a vote, then we decide later whether it counts essentially. That is in tension a little bit with the idea of finality on election day, and there's one time where everybody stands and be counted and vote, we count the votes that day. Um, it's, it's a natural tension. I'm not offering any solution. 
professors do that. I just raise problems. Um, but there is there is a, a tension there where I, I think you could probably see a correlation between the more we, we change the laws to allow uh, ease of voting, the easier it is to then question the results because things don't feel like they all happen on one day and they're not nearly as certain because the longer this election season, the more people can assume things will creep in, the more you sort of decide what votes count or not count after the polls close, will invite litigation, taxpayer-funded pundits, TV commentators, and the like. We have to keep them employed. Uh, Professor, do you have a solution to this? See, I did that right over. <laughs> Isn't the solution to, I mean, well, I mean, the solution to the question of, you know, we just have this kind of fractured voting or extended voting process? Yeah, yeah the restriking the balance between expanding the ease of voting while at the same time, you know, ensuring we don't make it so sort of open-ended that we lose the effect. I think the, I think the trend, I understand everything Don's saying, I think the trend is irreversible, is rooted in popular cultural expectations. People want to, people ask themselves, and this is one of the reasons why some people are sort of, some voters I find, some of the public that we had some occasion to talk to during the commission, I suspect is still true, don't understand why voting is so complicated when they can order books to their doors, groceries to their stores, you know, uh, renew their licenses online, and all of a sudden there's just this complication about voting, right? And their names may not be on the list, and they have to stand in line, and this and that and the other thing. And by the way, not to mention, you know, long ballots that also contribute to lines because people are voting on offices that they've never heard of or candidates that they don't know and care about. Uh, so, but I do think convenience voting is rooted, and but one of the big surprises, I, I think, in the commission's work was that we found that desire for ease on both sides of the aisle. The one thing everybody wanted was, it was sort of consumerist, was a consumerist in nature, accessible voting, because I don't want to have to be put to great trouble about it. And that was something, and that's one of the reasons why online registration, for example, and some of the other reforms took hold at least in maybe more states controlled by Republicans and maybe less receptive to these kinds of voting reforms than I had originally thought because there was pressure from below, from the, from the voters, for something simpler and more accessible. So I don't, I don't think it's reversible. I, it's, I, it's by Colorado examples as an example of that. Yeah, exactly, Where exactly. People thought the sky would fall and then it didn't, it didn't fall yeah. because people... You know, but you can't you can't take it to the extreme where everyone just kind of throws in post-it notes and you know hopes for the best. Right? That's fine for the Iowa caucus because that's just a caucus. But you know, when you're actually trying to elect people, there's high stakes and and you know the idea of sort of a process. I think the key is whatever process you have, that process has to be set before people start voting. Right? You can't kind of have a evolving process that allows people to attack it, and then it's you know the sense of of. You know, it's not who gets the most votes, it's who counts the votes that wins, right? That's, we don't want to end up there. Yeah. But the more you have ease of voting, the more that has to be kept, be kept in mind, that there's a point where there's, uh, there's something about knowing it can't, be, it can't be absolutely easy where it's, it's anything goes, because that just causes too much mischief, I think. I'm not going to stand for criticism of Iowa, the greatest state in the union. So I, I'm not criticizing Iowa. I'm just saying caucus is, is a different, whole different creature than, than an actual election. Let's change gears a little bit. Um, you two both, as I mentioned at the outset, have the unique experience of both being leaders in election law and then suddenly finding yourself not only winning a presidential election but then being White House counsel. And I'm just curious how, if, if at all, that subsequent experience in the White House changes your perception of the way we regulate the elections themselves. 
No. No. Well, let me ask another question then. No. Don, as somebody who chaired the FEC, <laughs> my views are kinda, my, my views are kind of in cement before so that you know. Uh, how did, how did I'm, that? I'm not like an evolving. I did not grow in office, as yeah. we say in DC. <laughs> we, I mean, we're seeing this already. Um, a year away from an election, you know, the unique situation, I mean, not unique in our country, but, you know, it's, I think, unique in general, that we have the head of our, our chief executive officer of our country, our constitutional officer responsible for enforcing the laws, is himself often a presidential candidate, subject to those laws. Mm -hmm. um, we had some discussions of this this morning about the challenges of, of regulating presidential campaigns where a president is a candidate. Somebody suggested at one point that maybe because the FEC is so gridlocked, it would be good to let the Justice Department or others take the lead on this. But of course, things get complicated when it's the Justice Department regulating the boss, the president. Is there any sort of way that we should recalibrate the way in which presidents and presidential campaigns are regulated, given that the president himself is the head of regulation in this country? I mean, is there any way to sort of I, don't, I guess I'm not sure I'm not, look, it seems a fundamental look, tension. It, let's take a step back, yeah. because baked in there is kind of a predicate assumption that I need to kind of push back on. We, the people, you know, not to go all kind of out there on this, but it is George Mason, so I think I can say this. We, the people, elect who runs the country. And the idea you're going to have some regulator, in, completely independent, sort of guessing who really won the presidential election or regulating the president simply is anathema to how we kind of do things, right? You see that in other countries. You don't, we don't have this here. We have a constitution. We have an electoral college. We have a system where that can be, if there's a question about the election, there's a process there. As far as the financing of elections, we've experimented with different things over the years, and, and the latest experiment is a bipartisan commission with staggered terms, so you don't have any one person in charge of regulating essentially the other team. By process of elimination, it's probably the best system. There, all, there, have been, there have been urges to sort of put one person in charge of that or, 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 or affect the balance or that kind of thing. Um, there was a lot of talk about that in the mid-2000s. And then President Bush put me on the FEC and I became chairman. It was amazing how all that talk about having an all-powerful chairman at the FEC stopped like that. Yeah. <laughs> right? Now it's coming back again. And it just, it goes in waves. And I think at the, at the end of the day, um, you know, there's no ideal. We can't strive for an ideal, but we need clear rules before people get on the field of play and then, and then go from there. You know, and then let's not forget the other part of the Constitution is the First Amendment. And the Supreme Court has made clear that a lot of this stuff is at the core of the First Amendment. Actually, it's all at the core. It's just a question of under these various balancing tests the court has imposed over the years, whether you can regulate some of it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this, the premise of how you, as you frame it, I don't think really is, is quite the, the choice that we have. There's a lot of immovable objects in there that I think uh, preclude certain approaches. I'll take a slightly different cut at this. <clears throat> Well, I think to the extent that, you know, Don is underscoring some of the difficulties, I wouldn't disagree conceptually that there are major difficulties here, but there, are, there is a huge problem with putting people who have a direct stake in the outcome of an election in charge of administering it, which is one of the reasons why somebody who's generally deregulatory in temperament and have been, you know, out of step with my political party on that to be sure, I have really come to the conclusion that the arrangement we have in the various states for elected officials like secretaries of state who are under tremendous 
pressure from their own political parties and are typically thinking about the next office they want to run for, to run elections, is an indefensible model. And I think in a variety of respects, uh, it's damaging. If you've been involved in recounts on either side, no matter how well behaved the Secretary of State is, there's a tremendous advantage to conducting a recount in a state where the Secretary of State happens to be of your party and a much bigger obstacle for you if the Secretary of State is of the other party. And just thinking about that, right, and recognizing that you've benefited as often as you've been harmed by it, I think points to the extent of the problem. In the case of the presidency, president and the vice president, there are two ways, uh, it seems to me, that there's a distinct danger that can be presented. And then the question is what you can actually do about it, which Don points out, you know, you might very well pick a healing medicine or a healing potion that's actually poisonous, depending on how you execute. The first is the deployment of the resources of the federal government, taxpayer front money, to enable the president to win, right? To just turn the entire apparatus of the government, including appropriated funds, to the maximum extent possible to underwrite the cost of winning an election campaign. Now, this is an old tale, and it's been complained about by both sides. I remember years ago, there was a lawsuit by the head of machinists who supported Teddy Kennedy in the primary challenge with Jimmy Carter, who filed a lawsuit alleging that the Carter administration was suddenly making lots and lots of lucrative grants to the state of Iowa, right? Corruptible state that it is. <laughs> uh, or maybe it didn't happen. But pardon me? Maybe they were above the fray and it didn't actually affect the outcome. Well, there's, there, there's that. <laughs> and the court, the court basically said what you might expect the state to say, because the government always had it. The administration, I have no idea what was behind those grants. I had nothing to do with it. Don't know anything about it. But the court's basic position is whatever may have been behind the grants and the government thought that they were for legitimate you know, uh, public policy purposes, the court didn't have a manageable standard by which to ferret out illicit political motives. So it just stepped out of the way. But it is, it is potentially a very significant issue. Uh, and it's been raised in contexts like whether or not White Houses should have offices of political affairs with dedicated government-paid employees who basically steer the party in a re-election campaign from the White House. And the second has to do with criminal violations of the election laws. I'm thinking about the 18 U.S.C. Section 600 series having to do with you know various forms of illicit interference in elections, various forms of voting rights violations overseen by a Department of Justice that answers to the President of the United States. And this raises this very vexing question of, to what extent do we really believe that the Department of Justice can operate independently? What does it mean to have an independent Department of Justice? When that isn't, and Don and I were just talking about this. Were you still, we were on the program yesterday. And I don't yesterday. Know, you were still there when we talked yeah. about that. Yeah. yeah. It's not independent. Now the question of what ways are there norms of independence that we should observe is a different question. But it's not structurally independent. And post-Watergate, uh, the government decided, including Democrats, in the immediate aftermath of Nixon's resignation, even though it was debated, even though it was proposed, that there was not going to be an independent Department of Justice and the Federal Bar Association, the American Bar Association came out against it as well. So what happens if the president, take, take a President X, so we can depoliticize the discussion, who picks you know, his brother, political brother, just hypothetically. Like hypothetically, hypothetically, his political lawyer, Bob Bauer or Don McGahn, and puts them in a strategic place in the Department of Justice and Ooh. says, this is what I want you to do, right? I need you to do what you can do, either to deploy these laws against my opposition or to protect me from liability for violating them. And I think those are serious questions, given the power of the federal government and the resources available to it. We spent a lot of time on the first panel this morning talking about the FEC 
and there was debate about the extent to which the FEC is or is, is not gridlocked, the extent to which that is or is not a problem that needs to be reformed. Curious for your take on this. Is, is FEC gridlock a thing? Is it a problem? Is there a, what, it, Well, there's no quorum right now, so um, I guess it depends how one, that is, I guess, the ultimate grid, gridlock. Yeah. Statute requires a quorum, which for almost all matters is at least four, for quorum it's four commissioners, and it probably takes all four of them to do most things that most people would see matter. So the statute has created a system that requires bipartisan support for things, and right now, because of the lack of quorum, there's, there, the, the commission can't really do all that much that, that's new. Um, the, the general system, I think, has been uh, good. Uh, there is, you know, hype about deadlocks and this kind of thing. A deadlock is not really a deadlock. It means that statutorily there were not enough commissioners who agreed that the commission needed to take action. That's, that's a, that is how the system was set up. So in a way it's a feature, not a bug. Um, and if you think about other models, I think we, you, at least for me, the more I think about it, the more I come back to probably on balance the, 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 not the most satisfying approach, but probably on balance the one that works the best. So, you know, it, it, the FEC was set up originally um, large part to administer public finance in the presidential elections, which is for the most part gone, although some candidates still take money, so they do audits and that kind of thing. So much of the FEC infrastructure was built around that. Um, it's, it is in search of some new things, uh, and then a series of Supreme Court cases cut, cut other parts away. Mm -hmm. Remember, uh, your, your, I guess we we'll say former law partner, but I think Mark Elias is, is your law partner. Mark does a great presentation where he actually holds up the election code and rips it in half and says this is what the Supreme Court did in Buckley, right? And very dramatic. He stole ripping pages out of books from me, apparently. I'm not sure what he's talking about, but, um, <laughs> Uh, you know, it's it's not the it's not the full loaf that Congress envisioned when they passed the, the various laws, but it is it is what we have. Uh, and then you know, Citizens United changed a lot. That also scales back what the commission can and can't do. So um, a lot of the so-called deadlock tends to be struggles over over how to either, at least in my view, continue to doing what they had been doing versus doing what some think you now have to do because the law has changed or caught up with what some may have already thought the law was. Yeah, yeah I, I think here again, um, one of the things that's overcome, the, the polarization has really overcome and further sort of undermined the prospect for effective campaign finance reform, even though it's often denied. If you look at the early debates, there was a belief that campaign finance could be thoroughly regulated and would include, among other things, keeping, quote, money out of politics. How much money you want out of politics depends on what you expect from politics. If, if you ask some of the people that on my side of the political aisle how much money they would be prepared to spend to deny a second term to Donald Trump, they're not interested in campaign finance reform. They're not interested in limits, okay? <laughs> they don't want to talk about limits. And that became apparent as early as the 2004 election when Democrats were trying to get rid of George W. Bush. And all of a sudden, the, the tool of circumvention of the day of Section 527 organization. Remember when that was a thing? When that was a thing, it was sort of, it was a, it was sort of the, the ancestor, the dinosaur ancestor of the super PAC. That became a huge issue on the Democratic side because of the attempt to flood the zone, if you will, financially to defeat George Bush and, and, and by doing so bring what they thought would be a speedier end to the war in Iraq. 
So I think that, that really creates tremendous pressures on some understanding, some agreed conception on what kind of campaign finance regulatory regime we should have. Transparency, on the other hand, I think is something, although it has been contested in recent years to a surprising degree, transparency is something about which there is, at least in principle, a fair amount of agreement. And that job has been done okay by the FEC, could still be done uh, better. Um, I, I just wanted to make one more point about um, the conflict issue you raised, if I could just for a second. It occurred to me, you know, one of, if, if, if you know that you cannot create an independent check on self-interested behavior, say in the executive branch, then it has to come from outside the executive branch and it has to come from Congress. And one of the biggest problems is, speaking of separation of political parties, not powers, that which Rick Tildes and Daryl Levinson uh, authored originally years ago, the concept of thinking about our separation of powers in those terms, separation of parties, not separation of uh, powers, Congress's failure to, 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 because of the polarized politics uh, of the day and a, and, a, and a rapid loss of sort of institutional backbone, the Congress's role in monitoring for some of these abuses is, it suddenly occurred to me, I just wanted to mention, one of the, one of the real problems in devising a solution to the problem that you identified earlier. I'm sorry to take us back to that. Oh, of course, uh, just one last question uh, from me. Um, Don, in, in the White House, you were, you know, central to the effort to reform regulations, reform sort of the shape and nature of modern administration. And of course, you did that after your time serving as an administrator, serving at the FEC and so on. You had a firsthand look inside of how an agency like that operates. I mean, here at the Gray Center, we're, this is not the Gray Center for the Study of Election Law. This is the Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. And this entire program today... The C. Boyd and Gray Center. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, it says it on our coffee mugs. Correct. So no mistaking it. Um, what attracted us to this topic was not so much election law per se. It was thinking about election law and, and all the law of democracy uh, through the lens of what we know about public administration. And I'm just curious, what's your sense of what goes on inside the FEC below the leadership level? What ways can or should that be reformed or improved to make sure that the FEC really is in the business of, of neutral competence, nonpartisanship, respecting individual liberty, including free speech? What could be done to, to improve the work inside of the FEC? To make it harmonize with liberty and free speech? Yeah. Wow. Well, that's a tough one because it's always going to be in tension with that. Um, you know, when I was there, I, I spent quite a bit of time on process and took a lot of cues from court cases that were coming down, not necessarily election law cases. When I first was appointed to the FEC, it also had lacked a quorum for about six months. So I came in a situation where a number of new commissioners, and the commission had tried to do things when they didn't have a quorum, and there was a, a case of the NLR, NLRB on lack of quorum that was going up the courts, and, and I thought that seems to be very similar. Um, then another case, Sackett versus EPA, which is sort of a, the idea of due process applying to administrative agencies. That, to me, was a huge case. And a lot of what I was doing was taking cues, really, from that sort of concept. So I spent a lot of time on not so much the nitty-gritty of election law, which as someone who had practiced it for years, I didn't really have to study up. I spent time thinking about more how the, how the agency functioned as an agency. Uh, and we did a number of things when I was there. Uh, including allowing, 
correcting what was kind of a weird thing where if you asked for an advisory opinion, you would file a written opinion and the commission would deliberate it, but you never had an opportunity to actually then appear in person. And, and we had all, those of us who practice in the area, had, had situations where we'd be sitting in the audience and the commission would be struggling with particular issues, but yet they couldn't ask us the question. So we actually put in a process where the requester could come in and actually present to the commission. Um, same with other things uh, on, the, on the enforcement side, where now there's much more opportunity to be heard, file briefs and that kind of thing. The one thing I took from the FEC that I think did influence my thinking when I got to the White House was this idea of due process. And, and no one really likes to deal with the sort of faceless bureaucracy where they don't feel like they're being heard. And I find even if you end up losing, if you felt like somebody actually took your argument seriously and you actually were able to brief it to somebody who was a real decision maker as opposed to someone who didn't really seem to be the person who could really make the decision, you feel a lot better, at least by the outcome. So. You know, I, I kind of get on this due process kick and uh, uh, still talk about it a lot today. Um, and this, it, it bled into so much of, of my thinking. So I, I don't have a, uh, you know, the harmonizing with the First Amendment and all that. I'm not going to touch that one because that's, that's, a, that's been a struggle since the place opened its doors. But I think the more um, people feel like they're getting a fair shake and there's not some sort of secret, stuff, secret sauce going on behind closed doors is something that, uh, allows people to have a little more confidence. Bob, Bob, you now run an entire clinic on the regulatory process. Is there any aspect of the FEC regulatory process that needs to be reformed? I, I agree with Don about the due process issues. I think he, he, it was absolutely correct. I, I was always surprised when I first started practicing before the agency how much of it was sort of you know, closed under the ex parte rules essentially and under other requirements. It was closed off to the Responded in an enforcement action. We only play. I, I, you know, I, I don't know what to say about the current commission. I, I really feel, I feel for the agency in many respects because it basically has very few constituencies left to stand up for it. It's lambasted on the left. It's lambasted on the right. Um, uh, you know, it's it's subject to the you know sort of NIMBY kind of analysis of outcomes that um, we see elsewhere in our politics nowadays that are very outcome determinative judgments about how it's performed its responsibilities. And I think it's a recruitment problem for the agency. That means it's much harder, I suppose, for the agency to get the people who could maybe enhance the performance of the agency where it could do better. Mm -hmm. Funding's an issue. So on that point, yeah. conservative guy, I don't like spending taxpayer money, but you know, the commissioners actually make less than kind of the mid-level staff at other agencies. So it's not, it's not a plum assignment economically. And, and when you're, you know, living paycheck to paycheck as a government worker, another 20, 25 grand a year can make the difference. And I know a number of people really don't even want to bother because all the forms you have to fill out, the background check, going through the Senate, you know, it's, it, the pay is, is not so good. And that's at the staff level, too. I mean, look, bureaucracies, I'm, I'm sort of known as a sort of anti-bureaucratic guy, and I, I am, but 90% of the people in these agencies show up, they want to do their job, they get there in the morning, they work all day, they go home, they put food on the table. But there's 10% that then, you know, 5% of them really aren't with your program and they just kind of don't do anything. And the other 5% tend to really have their own thing going on. And I, I, I see this kind of throughout the Washington, D.C. bureaucracy, but it, it's... To get better talent, you know, you kind of have to give them more of cost of living and that kind of, you know, sort of better, better kind of thing. So it's not just funding for fancy stuff. It's actually an incentive to get better talent 
and a number of folks that I've talked to um, somewhat recently about whether they might want to go on the FEC, the thing I hear most often is, you know, it just, it doesn't really pay and it's a lot of headache for not a lot of thing. I mean, it's not like the agency you go to to get some magic golden parachute, right? It's not like being the chairman of the SEC or the FCC or one of these agencies. It's not, it's not, it's not perceived as, as, as that sort of agency. And in fact, you know, a number of folks kind of go there and they, they just, they kind of just drift back to whatever they were doing before. It's not, it's not a career enhancer. Not suggesting it should become one, but the more, uh, you know, maybe a little bump in pay uh, would be, would, would maybe show a little more seriousness, you know, but it's just, it's, it's kind of just there right now. Well, we have a couple of minutes, a few minutes left for just a couple of questions. We definitely want to give at least uh, students the first opportunity to ask questions. They're all looking at each other now. Um, uh, if we have any, any questions, there are a couple of microphones. So raise your hand, and uh, I'll call on somebody on the microphone and find you. Let's start right over here with the first question. Um, thanks very much. I wanted to ask your thoughts on an aspect of election-related law that's on many people's minds right now, namely the uh, what counts as constitutional efforts by the president to seek foreign assistance in a U.S. election. Do either of you think that the president committed an impeachable offense by exhorting Ukraine and China to investigate Biden, the current frontrunner, to become his opponent in next year's election? No. <laughs> What was, what was the question? <laughs> We're playing our roles. Okay. Can I ask the question at a broader level of generality? Yeah, I'm, not, I'm happy to answer that one. I signed up for kind of an election law thing, not yeah. the current yeah. seminar. Right. But, but, uh, you know, but this gets back I, to... I've never been shy to, to speak, so... Well, we know that. We're glad you can make it today. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but this gets back to my earlier question about, when, you know, government officials, whether it's a president, a member of Congress, or, again, at the state level, a secretary of state, you know, both administering the laws and also campaigning for election under those laws. Uh, presidents, for example, have a variety of constitutional powers. And it's a long-established sort of uh, presumption, especially within the executive branch, but I think also in the courts, right, that we, we're careful in sort of immediately presuming that the president's exercise of constitutional power is sort of squarely within the ambit of front-of-the-mill federal statutes. This seems to be something that's come up quite a bit in debates, and I'd be curious, especially Bob, for your answer on this. Again, should say the FEC and those who administer federal election laws, how do you make sure that they're cognizant of that constitutional value, right, of, of the, the space that we leave for presidents to, and others to carry out their constitutional duties? Okay, so let me, I'll answer you, and I hope by answering you, I'll also answer the question from the audience member about the kind of nature of the, of, of the problem here that, that I might see, and I, I'll do it without, you know, putting Don, Don in an awkward position, just as I would hope he wouldn't put me on an issue from years ago, in a, or any issue from before, in an awkward position. So let me go to Bob Mueller. Let's just take it away from the... Um, because that's like ancient history now. The, but yeah, who, <laughs> that's exactly right. Who's Bob Mueller? Uh, and I've, I've written about this, as others have. I do believe that the longstanding prohibition on foreign national spending in connection with an election, which is very broadly cast, was enacted in 1966 and amended twice in 1974 and 2002, uh, is being 
underinterpreted and underenforced. And I was very disappointed in the Mueller analysis. It was not because, incidentally, I didn't see the reasons why Mueller may have even prudentially decided that he didn't want to make the campaign finance issue centerpiece in his report. I think he had, if you will, other fish to fry that he cared about very profoundly. That became, I think, clear both from the way the report was constructed and even to some extent, although he was guarded in his congressional testimony. But I do think we, the, the net effect of this has been that nobody thinks, uh, or let's put it this way, nobody takes seriously the sorts of problems uh, that we see reflected in the reporting day to day. I'm, I'm being euphemistic here, but I think we know what we're talking about. And as a result, I think it ushers in a period of time of, of maybe a significant degree, at least around this particular issue of lawlessness, of just the refusal to accept that there is, as by the way Judge Kavanaugh wrote in the opinion, roundly upholding this restriction in the law. An opinion, I think, in 2000, Blumen versus right. Federal Election Commission, in which he said that whatever the boundaries of regulation, the First Amendment right to participate does not belong to those who are not members of what he called the American political community. And I think that's getting softened now in a serious way. And I'm very disturbed, obviously, by um, any senior elected official or senior official who appears to be uh, taking actions that suggest a very, uh, a very, very sort of aggressive view of how much space there is to invite foreign nationals into the electoral process. As to the question of impeachment, I, I'll, I'll in deference to the fact that it's really not on the agenda here, but I have an opinion and, and it's in print. Yeah, right. I welcome you to read yeah, it as yeah. well. Yeah. I, I read it looking, I'm looking back to the, to the yeah. student table, but seeing uh, no further questions from back there, again, I, I, you mentioned earlier the FEC is under uh, attack from both the left and the right, so it's nice that we can celebrate some bipartisanship in this town. Um, but uh, we're just very grateful for both of you for taking the time to discuss these issues in this forum. Uh, so please join me in thanking Mr. Bauer and Mr. McGann. Thank you.